When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When the Rodney King story broke, the host of the show says we should talk to the cops, parish priests, and see if they could give us character portraits of these cops. And I said, I think we should be talking to Rodney King's kindergarten teacher, because the kindergarten teacher is as relevant as these cops priests. There was silence in the room and the executive producer said, okay, noted. What stories do you think we should be doing? Then I pull my papers back and I start going through them. And that meeting ends and I walked into the ladies room and I just collapsed. Like it just took all the courage I had. It's my first big journalism job and I was speaking up and telling them they were wrong. And that's when I realized I was going to stick with this career and it was going to work out. I'm Geraldine Moriba, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're speaking with Geraldine Mariba, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, filmmaker, and advocate. Geraldine's the host and executive producer of Sounds Like Hate, a podcast funded by the Southern Property Law Center about how American extremists become radicalized and how some of them can change. Geraldine's also senior vice president of news and entertainment at The Grio, a Black-owned media platform owned by businessman and philanthropist Byron Allen. And she's a media and journalism veteran, having held senior roles at CNN, NBC, PBS, ABC, and the CBC, including being a vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion for CNN Worldwide. Sharon, kind of a fanboy for the Southern Property Law Center and Geraldine and all the work she's been doing against hate. This was a pretty interesting one. Yeah, she definitely was. And we knew a lot about her work before we even spoke to her. And talking to her reinforced a lot of what seemed to be just amazing about her. One of the things I was very inspired by was her own experience with racism throughout her entire life. But specifically, she had an incident that happened to her in university, which the outcome of that has been real impact that she's making today, even years after she's left the institution. And I think that's a testament to who she is. She creates change for the future, but she's almost like going back to the past to fix some things today. So it was this real interesting conversation of common themes that have happened to her and also all of the impact that she's made along the years. Yeah, the story of her journey, it's all these things that happen, which aren't problems for her, they're opportunities to go make change. And It's not even overt racism, which does exist in a lot of the stories she tells, but even observed things and blind spots. We all have blind spots, which is something we talked a lot about. So we think you're really going to enjoy hearing from our new friend, Geraldine. 
Geraldine, welcome to the pod. It's so great to finally have you here. It's good to be here. So a lot of people know your work, but I guess what we really want to know is, where are you from? So that's always a complicated answer for me because I'm from a lot of places. I'm technically Canadian by birth, so I'm from Toronto, but I've been in the United States living in New York City longer than I have in my hometown of Toronto. So I'm American and I'm American citizen. However, to make it more complicated, my family is Jamaican, so I am seriously culturally influenced by my roots in the Caribbean and Jamaica as well. So I'm Canadian, Jamaican, American. So how do you answer that question at a party then with someone you've never met? Just like that. You give them the whole thing. <laughs> I do because it's complicated unless I really want to end the conversation. I just pick one country and walk away. And where did you spend most of your childhood? Oh, my entire childhood was in Canada. I was there right through my college years. I did actually study in Jamaica for one year in high school, mm -hmm. which would be in Jamaica third form and here in North America, grade nine. Can you tell us a story about what it was like growing up in Canada as a little girl? Just one story? There are I mean, so many. <laughs> there are so many, right? I can honestly say that I had a home that was supportive and rich and dynamic and fun to go home to. I had a base and a shelter. Outside of my home, I had many traumatic race-based experiences and gender too. But specifically, I was called the N-word many, many, many times as a kid. I had my racial identity questioned many times, my ethnicity questioned. So I could go on about stories, and, and it was my siblings too. And Canada is an incredible place. What's different about living in Canada than living here in the United States is people hold on to their original national identities. Most people are immigrants from someplace else. And even when you're many generations removed from that place, people still hold on to it in Canada. So I grew up in communities that were global with people from India and Pakistan, with people from East Africa and West Africa, with people from the Caribbean. And so I could play at someone's home and we would talk about a Hindu god as easily as I could be at the home of another friend who was German, and this was one of my best friends, and her parents would talk to me and tell me, t actually teach me German. Her mom became my German teacher and, and teach me about their German heritage. So Canada was this rich place where you learned a lot about other cultures, but it doesn't mean it didn't have hate and there weren't expressions of hate and that racism wasn't incorporated into the institutions in Canada. So I experienced it many ways as a child. And was this happening in school? Was it happening in the neighborhood? Was it happening in the grocery store? Wow. All of the above. In school, my intelligence was constantly questioned by teachers. I, I can give you a list of stories and incidents where I had to self-advocate or my mother would go in and I had to demonstrate that I had this knowledge. Not once, not just in elementary school, but at every stage of my learning. And it happened in university too. I went to a university, the University of Western Ontario, which to this day 
is measurably anti-black. And when I was at that university, there was a professor there, Philip Rushton, who was a known documented racist who taught racist theory around brain size and genital size and taught it in the classroom and did research that's been debunked again and again and again, but research that is fundamental to a lot of white supremacy organizations today, still. And when I was a a college student at the University of Western Ontario, he was tenured and he taught then and continued to teach till his dying day at this university. As a student, not just how did that make you feel, but what did you feel you could do about that? Or was there nothing you could do? It's just the system and you need to get your degree and get out there and change the world. But or were, were there protests about this guy? Or did you not find that out till later on? <laughs> so as a student, and this is like anybody who's listening, just know you always have power and, and the means to affect change. I became a student organizer. I was still studying. I was still a student on the campus. I still had expectations that were based on my academics and my goal to graduate, of course. But I organized along with other students protests. We organized guest speakers. I met personally, along with some other students, with the president of the university more than once. And I remember those conversations vividly. His name was George Pedersen. And one conversation in particular, he said to me, Geraldine, what year are you in? And I told him I was a sophomore. And he laughed and he said, okay, well, then my problems will all be gone in two years. And, and I asked him what that meant. And I said, does that mean you're not doing anything? And he said, that's exactly right. He's not going to do anything. And he stuck to his word, like nothing ever happened to Rushton. However, what we were able to create was a lot of awareness on campus and and safety zones for students who were traumatized by this experience. I know students who are psychology majors who had to attend classes that were core requirements that he taught. Can you imagine being a student in that class? And the difference between Rushton at at so many campuses and other professors is that he was overtly racist. There are also many professors who believe the same things but are smart enough not to express them. So they harm you and traumatize you and hold you back in other ways. It's very telling to hear these kind of formative stories in your college years because we know what you've gone on to do. And I think how I discovered you was your work through the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I'm literally a card-carrying member of. Um, But I I guess I want to back up a little bit more. When you were a little girl, did you think you were going into this activist territory? What because you grew up in the mosaic of Canada, which versus the melting pot of America, and but there was racism. But at, what did you want to be when you were a little girl? And when did the I hate to say activist in you awaken? What what was that moment in that contrast? So I I wanted to go into medicine growing up. I studied sciences. I went to specialized high schools. I went to a high school at one point in the Science Center in Toronto and was a student there, really focused on going into medicine and even got um, a job at a hospital in Scarborough and became a phlebotomist collecting blood. But it was my accelerated high school studies and working in the hospital that made me realize I actually didn't want to be a doctor. 
I feel like a lot of people hit that. <laughs> yeah, like I, it was what I wanted to do as a kid, like my whole childhood, right through high school. But the closer I got to college and once I started my freshman year, I just started thinking, I actually don't know if this is the space I want to be in. And I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do research. So I, I actually took a, a gap year after my freshman year of university and, and traveled and then went back and switched majors to politics. But it was as soon as I arrived in my freshman year when I discovered this professor on campus. And I was already acutely aware of racist incidents on campus because the students talked about it and we shared our experiences with each other. So I knew there were things happening. What I didn't know was about this one professor. So I returned for my sophomore year and like at the beginning of the year, it became pretty clear that we needed to organize. So I just stepped into that space. By the time I graduated, I decided I was actually going to become a foreign diplomat. I wanted to be a part of Canada's diplomatic corp. I wanted to take the foreign service exam and was studying and preparing for that and happened to be in a friend's part-time job. Her job was as a legal assistant, and we were at this office after hours faxing letters, like press releases, about an exhibit in Toronto that at the time was racist, and I was helping to support them as well. And we were faxing these press releases. And after sending a fax out, a press release came back and the machine goes, and it starts, the paper starts coming out. And I walked over, I grabbed it, and it was a handwritten note that said, will the person who wrote this press release apply for the following job? And, and it was an entry-level position at a show called As It Happens at CBC Radio in Canada. And, and it's a globally heard show. And I held it up to my friends and said, does anybody want to apply for this journalism job? And everybody laughed. And I folded it up. I put it in my pocket because I certainly had no intention of applying. Why not? <laughs> I believed in the narrative of Canada, that we can be from many nations and live as one. And I, I wanted to have an impact on culture in other ways. So I got home that night with this handwritten note in my pocket. And my mom, being Jamaican, asked me whether or not I'd applied for a job that day. And I this is like the summer after my graduating year. So I think I was one month out of school. And I said that I hadn't, and she said that wasn't good enough. I needed to work. I had a degree. What was I doing? And I, I kept explaining to her that I was going to apply for graduate school and this other program, like <laughs> take this exam. And, and she said, but you have to work now. And she said, you need a job now. So I pulled out this paper and said, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to apply for this job, mom. And she said, good, apply for it. So now I have to apply for this job that I didn't really want, right? Your entire journalism career is predicated on placating mom guilt. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's, Your mom sounds awesome, by the way. She is awesome. She turned 80 this year and she's still awesome. Oh, and, that's so and, and that's how I became a journalist because I needed to be honest with my mom. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm applying for this. Then I had to apply and, and I applied and I was the worst applicant, I'm telling you, because... I didn't want the job, so I had an attitude. And I remember the person who interviewed me, her name's Talene, she's retired now. I've met her again since then, and she's great. And I was terrible. She did 
a news quiz. What about this event? What about that event? And I knew all of the events because I was a news junkie. Like what I didn't realize, I was the perfect journalist. Like everything I'd done set me up to be a journalist, but it wasn't my goal. So I, I knew all the current events she asked about. She quizzed me. And then I said to her, I also know your show, and I can tell you a few ways to improve your show. Here are some problems that you guys have. And I went through this list oh, of all... This is in the interview? This is in the interview. Because, again, oh I didn't really want the job, and I didn't think she'd hire me. And, <laughs> and I told her all the problems I thought they had on their show. And then she told me she was taking notes. She asked me other questions. And at the end of the interview, she asked me to come into the office for another interview because this was all over a payphone. So I was like, okay, great, fine, sure. Okay, so I go oh, in wow. for the next interview and they hire me on the spot. Oh, and my I gosh. thought, oh no. So it gave me something to say to my mom, see, I'm starting this job. It's not going to last, but I'm taking it. And then what happened was I fell in love with the career. Like I stepped into it and realized I could do this and I could tell the stories that I felt the media was not telling the stories we were missing and and then I never left it became my career what was that first moment when you realized you had that opportunity one of the very first stories story assignments I got was to meet with Winnie Mandela Nelson Mandela had just been released from prison or was about to be released. I can't remember which, but she was doing a worldwide tour and sort of prepping the world for his release and what it meant for South Africa and for politics globally. And I got the assignment to sit with her and it was interesting because everybody knew she was coming and she was doing multiple interviews with multiple news agencies, but nobody volunteered for that assignment. And I raised my hand and said, I'd do it. And I went in and sat with her. And I think it was that early moment that I realized what an opportunity this was to A, get to meet somebody like her, but to tell her story myself as a black Canadian through that lens. And then the other thing I will tell you is that A taught me that I had a seat at the table, but what really showed me and demonstrated to me personally how important it was, was when the Rodney King story broke. So Rodney King, the video is released. And I, I remember that day, like it was yesterday. And, and I saw Story Flash and, and brought a printout to one of the executives of the show. And they said to me, passed it to the executive producer, and she said to me that it was a good story, but it wasn't really Canadian. And this stuff happens all the time. And I said, yes, but this is the first time it's videotaped. There's visual evidence. And she said, no, I don't really think it's our story for today. So I was disappointed. I went back to my desk and I started watching the story and like just wow. taking notes and writing down all the people I thought we should be talking to. And, and I decided I'd pitch it the next day. Of course, by that evening, it's the headline everywhere globally. Mm -hmm. So we go into our editorial meeting the next day and I walk in with a stack of story ideas of things we should be doing and angles and ways to approach this. And what happens is the host of the show back then, Michael Enright, says like he's always the one who kicks off the meeting and says what he thinks the lead story should be. So he says, 
he thinks that the story should be exactly the one that we'd missed the night before and that we should talk to the cops, parish priests, talk to their priests and see if they could give us character portraits of these cops. And the executive producer turned to me and said, okay, well, that'll be our first story. And and Geraldine, since you pitched this yesterday, I'm giving you the right to say what else we should be doing. So I put everything that I had and I dramatically pushed it aside. And I said, I think we should be talking to Rodney King's kindergarten teacher. And everybody looks at me and says, why? Like, why do you want to talk to the kindergarten teacher? Because I said, the kindergarten teacher is as relevant as these cops, parish priests. And if we're going to talk to their priests, talk to Rodney King's kindergarten teacher, because they'll both equally give a really positive portrait. And there was silence in the room, and the executive producer said, okay, noted, we won't do the parish priest today. What stories do you think we should be doing? Then I pull my papers back and I start going through them. And and all the stories get assigned. And I remember that meeting ends and I walked into the ladies room and I closed the door and I just collapsed. Like it just took all the courage I had to speak up in that meeting. I'm about 23 or 24 years old and it's my first big journalism job. And I was speaking up to people who are like really respected in the industry in Canada. And I was telling them they were wrong. And it wasn't lost to me in that moment that I could do that. But also, we were getting the story right, because I spoke up. And that's when I realized I was probably going to be okay, I was going to stick with this career. And it was going to work out. In that newsroom, in that moment, what was the demographic breakup? <laughs> well, it was the only black person. There was one producer from India, and I think that was it. Yeah. I, th- I think that was it. It was it was a newsroom that was gender balanced in a uh, binary way. There were an equal amount of female staffers as there were male staffers, and and the executive producer was very deliberate and and smart in that way. Every day, our editorial storyboard, she would write gender symbols beside each story. And, and when we had too many men, she'd throw the markers across the room and say, we need more <laughs> women. And so she was conditioning us to make sure there was a gender balance in the show every day. But absolutely no attention was paid to any other type of identity characteristic. It's so interesting because at the top of this conversation, you talked a lot about systems. And it's not just systems of racism, but it's systems of blind spots that we have. Like even on this this podcast, right? We have a spreadsheet that has columns and we push really hard to alternate between male and female guests or, or look at the demographics or the perspectives we're not talking to because even on another podcast where I interview executives, if, if left to our own devices and biases, we'll, we'll just reinforce the systems that we've already got. Right, right. And the other part of it is, which is what you're pointing to, is if you want to be fair, you can't just assume that you're noble and you know how to do it. You have to count. You have to use the data and measure every day, every hit. How are we doing? Yeah, it's none of us are, are perfect or infallible in, in these things. And to your point, it's just hold a mirror up to the work. I guess of all the stories and all the angles and all the guests 
that you've worked on in, in multiple chapters of your career. What is one of those challenging moments where it didn't work out the way you thought it was going to, either for better or for worse, but you go in with an angle, you go in with an approach. What's one of those surprising moments of learning for you? Huh, that's a hard question. So you're going to think that this answer is arrogant, but it's not. It's just truthful. The reason why I can't come up with one is I actually haven't had a lot of those moments. And primarily because I'm just a glass half full person. And if you tell me no, I'm going to find another way to do it. And if I can't do it here, I'll go where I can, but it's going to get done. And, and I'll give you examples, like it might not be done now, but it'll be done eventually, like my alma mm. mater. I'm now the first president of the Black Alumni Association at the University of Western. And, and I've gone back. It's, during the pandemic, there were a lot of incidents that flared up around the same time as George Floyd protests here in the United States. And there were incidents that were racist and students were organizing. And I, if I, as a student, didn't move the needle back then, maybe I, as an alumnus, can do it. So I organized other black graduates, and we've officially formed the first black alumni association at the university. And we're now organizing and trying to figure out how to address some of these issues, all of them, if we can, of anti-black racism. So while back then I felt like I would never, ever have anything to do with that university again and walked away, not feeling a sense of pride, but feeling just this deep disappointment and resentment towards the institution, I've now gone back at a different stage of life and organized and, and, and I'm continuing to organize other people to make sure that it becomes a better place for future generations. So that other guy can't wait the sophomores out? No. Well, they can try. They can <laughs> certainly try. But I'll even say the museum that I mentioned at the beginning in of the call that I was helping organize around, they had an exhibit called Into the Heart of Darkness. And it was based on these narratives that they found from the journals of missionaries who traveled across Africa, and they were taking these very, very racist excerpts from these diaries and juxtaposing them against images of African people and sculptures and artifacts and so on. And it was just an inappropriate racist juxtaposition. And we were able to not only organize and bring awareness about the exhibit, but we shut down that exhibit. It didn't travel anywhere else. It was scheduled to go around the globe. It didn't go anywhere after it launched in Toronto. And not only that, on the 25th anniversary, a few years ago, they officially apologized and the university brought back some of us, some of the people who had organized against it, and asked us to help them become a better institution and what are they not doing that they should. And so I feel like life is constantly in progress and we have to constantly work. And if I don't achieve something that I'm trying to today, I will achieve it tomorrow. That's so inspiring. I love the fact that you turn that situation into something today that will continue to create change for folks going forward. What are some types of things that you've had to do in your career to fit in? So 
I think it's really important that we don't compromise our values or suppress who we are. Like it's important to belong, but the most successful teams, and I, I believe this with my entire being, but the most successful teams are the teams that allow people to be true to who they really are and bring their entire intellectual and cultural self to the table every day to fit in it's not so much that I've tried to fit in ever any place I've gone it's more like I try to disarm so I sometimes um, through at different points in my career start off conversations that are challenging with things that will make the person I'm speaking to or people I'm speaking to a little disarmed and comfortable. So I might crack a joke or just, and I'm not saying behave silly at all, but I'll say something to let them know that whatever stereotype they have in their mind, I'm not that person. And I, I think that if you can make people comfortable and get them to accept you as you are, chances are you are able to go forward with more success. One of my jokes, do you want to hear one? Sure. How do you identify a Canadian? How? You step on their foot and they'll apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's like a silly little joke, but making somebody laugh usually makes them more comfortable and you just go from there. But I by no means am willing to compromise any part of my identity to so-called fit in. I love the contrarian nature that you bring to some of these answers, because it's not that you're, I, I, I find you're, you're flipping the question on, we shouldn't do these things. And you've been demonstrating it. And that, that brings me to one thing, a project of yours that I have come to love and admire is one of your many projects, but the podcast with the Southern Poverty Law Center sounds like, hey, and card-carrying member, I read the magazine, <laughs> I like donate. What was the impetus of that show? Because you cover so many of the themes that I've known my entire life, not just the very special racism we have in the South with MLK, Robert E. Lee Day, or don't get me started on Stone Mountain, but even some of these hate groups, you profile the families. Where did this come from? The idea to articulate and tell these stories in this way. Yeah, so what happened was I was approached by the Southern Poverty Law Center while I was doing a fellowship at Stanford University, the Knight Fellowship, and they asked me whether or not I could make a podcast related to this notion of hate and what would it be like. And I was in the thick of the fellowship and I just didn't have time to think about it. But what happened was I finished the fellowship. I went back to my work as a, a journalist and a filmmaker and was really busy. And then the 2020 election started approaching and we were so divided as a nation. And it's not so much that we were divided in a way that we had not been before. It's just that it was all on the surface now. Like that stuff was always here. It's just we had the okay to talk about it. And the way we talked about it was really divided. So when I was asked a second time and a third time by the SPLC to pitch something, they had this funding, they wanted an idea. I developed this idea of working on telling the stories of both sides of people who've had to deal with hate, both from the perspective of 
people who live in that space and are proponents of it, like white supremacists, but also the people who are the victims of it. And so while every episode is telling a single story of hate in different ways, because there's so much Tragically, there's so much hate in our communities. Ultimately, what I'm trying to get to with this podcast, what I hope we are achieving as a team, is stories around the concept of belonging. So there's this theory of belonging, and there are different stages of belonging. There's in inclusion, when you feel like you're an insider and you're able to contribute to your community or your workplace or your school, like wherever you are, that you're an insider and respected because of your unique contributions. And then there's the opposite, which is exclusion. And you're treated like an outsider and you're not valued. And and you don't want to be in either extremes. And then there are degrees in between those two things. Like you can be an insider and try to conform to the dominant norms, but you're suppressing yourself, which is why I said earlier that I don't really believe in conforming. But you could be unique and hold on to your uniqueness and still be an outsider. So what any community, whether it's a school or a foundation or a corporation, what the goal is should always be to have a team of insiders, like people who are really valued and are able to contribute. And to me, what we're doing with a podcast, like that's my ideology, but in the stories we're telling, whether it's about Confederate monuments in the most northwest corner of Alabama, or we're talking about as we are in this new season coming up, kids who are in foster care and marginalized because they're gay, either scenario There are people who feel like they belong and they make decisions. And then there are people who are marginalized and shut out and put in the corner. And and we're just trying to tell those stories in a full way so that we can hold mirrors up to ourselves and recognize that things are not always as simple as they seem. And there are problems. When you go to any extreme, it's going to create a problem that sometimes ends in results that are equally extreme. What's been the most surprising thing or unexpected thing that you've learned from the show? So one of the surprises I've found in telling the stories associated with the show is that people really dig into whatever it is they believe, like stand firm, even when what they believe is filled with holes and wrong, like clearly, overtly wrong, because it helps them belong to something, because it's part of what their parents told them or what their friends believe, or it helps their popularity. They'll just stick to it. It's our heritage. It's my culture, this false pride that they have. And it's rooted again in this quest for belonging and I don't know. I thought that you could reason and inform people and get out of these really odd corners. But if we look at COVID, for instance, we'll see that people don't 
listen to the truth when it's right in front of them. And it has to do with all kinds of theories of bias, of course. My current job right now that I'm embracing and I'm really enjoying is working as the senior vice president of the GRIO, which is a Black-owned news outlet, but it's also staffed by African Americans. And we're telling stories of Black people globally. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating about this new job is whether you're working in a general market mainstream newsroom or you're working in a niche newsroom, there are always going to be deniers and people who question what you're reporting. And so it's super important that as you do your work that you stand in truth and that you hold very firm standards in all the reporting you do because inevitably people, and that's the surprise to me, like people believe what they want to believe even when the things they believe are clearly rooted in one form or another of bias. I was going to ask actually about what some of the criticism and the pushback was from the outside world, but it sounds like it's not all rosy inside always. Uh, and, and it's not direct. Sometimes it's unconscious. But have, have you seen more, maybe not in the current role, given the makeup and the mission, but have you experienced more pushback and criticism internally or externally? What, what has that mix been? And what has that been like? Well, it depends on which of the worlds you're talking about. <laughs> You've worn a lot of hats. Yeah. So if you're talking about the podcast, there hasn't really been a lot of criticism or pushback because we're telling stories of real people and letting them tell their truths and in a way that we can cooperate and, and demonstrate that it's true. But those truths are not what we're deliberately doing is not telling just one truth. Like there was a whole series that we did about a separatist group called The Base. And the way that we told their story was by getting access, unfortunately, to hours and hours, a hundred and I think three hours of secret audio recordings. And, and then instead of just randomly picking bites from those audio recordings to suit what we thought the story was, we used machine learning to analyze it. And we used machine learning to figure out like what phrases they said the most, what their tone was, who spoke the most, what topics they talked about the most, what books they mentioned the most, and so on, and, and made a lot of discoveries about their background, about their attitudes. And that was the basis of our reporting. And you can't argue with that. Again, we didn't take the recordings and say, we'll use this little clip here and this little clip here and put them together and randomly create a story. We used artificial intelligence to give us data. And then we reported on the data, on the findings of this massive amount of conversations that were recorded in what they call their recruiting room, where they were trying to find other like-minded racists and bring them into the fold. And they didn't know they were being recorded. So they are speaking cautiously because you're interviewing someone who you don't know. But what was fascinating is it didn't take much for the people who were doing the interviewing to get comfortable, let down their hair, relay their true feelings. And so did we get criticism on that reporting? Not really. Like certainly there were occasional jabs on social media by people who themselves support the ideology of the base. But fortunately, that's the minority of Americans and not a, a large 
amount, but those minorities can inflict a lot of damage, as we saw earlier this year on January 6th at the insurrection. Yeah, it, it, it is the vocal minorities sometimes. Not that just they alone are dangerous, but that, I don't know. It's, it's funny that you bring up January 6th. It's something we didn't talk about enough on this show, but it was one of those scary awakenings because the rest of us in the middle or on the other side, we have this false complacency sometimes. And then sometimes these other moments shake us out of that. Yeah, absolutely. If we were to take you back in time, Geraldine, to when you were a little girl growing up in Toronto, what is something you would tell her today? I think I would tell my younger self the same thing I tell my children, which is they have to do what they love, that they have to believe in themselves enough to take chances and do what they love. Because when you do what you love, it doesn't feel like work. But it does mean that you have to be dedicated to it. So you have to work harder than the next person, be more proficient than the next person, more competitive than the next person, and just have fun. Because if you can do all those things, then you will find success and you will find a pathway and a way in. So what I I tell my children is, it doesn't matter to me whatever they want to do with their lives. And this is what I would say to my younger self, just do what you love. And by doing what you're most passionate about, you'll find your path. Geraldine, I loved hearing about your entire journey and not not just your journey, but kind of your perspective that you've carried through it. And I, I want to spend a lot more time, but I think we're almost out of time. So Sharon, what do you think? Do you think Geraldine's ready for speed round? I think you're ready for speed round, Geraldine. Okay. What is something about you that people don't expect? That I grew up playing ice hockey. Oh, come on. You're Canadian. (laughs) Isn't that expected? (laughs) Don't all of you play ice hockey and speak French? (laughs) No, but I should qualify that and say that I was, and I still am, a terrible ice hockey player. But I did play with my brothers a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. What is a book, movie, or TV show? with characters that you can relate to? I think one of the most important shows that I've seen recently is I May Destroy You. And it's on HBO and it's a series and I can't relate to the characters. I'm glad I can't relate to them. It's about sexual assault and harassment and sexual identity, but it's because I can't relate to them. And there was so much for me to uncover and discover in the watching of it that I, I think it's brilliant. I think it's genius. And it was very raw. And, and I, I highly recommend it. What's your favorite mom dish? So my daughter says I love my cooking more than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I am a good cook. My kids would say my favorite mom dish is chicken chili, because I mm. make that for them. And it's easy and fast. But my favorite dish to make is ramen noodles. I really love making it for myself. What's funny about the way you answered that question is you answered it as a mom. I guess, what would you say your favorite dish that your mom made was? Oh, that's easy. Oxtails. <laughs> Ooh, I, yeah. I knew that. Given the Canadian Jamaican <laughs> thing you had going. So. What is your least favorite food? That's hard. I, I once upon a time said mushrooms, but I've grown to have a thing for mushrooms. I don't really like candy actually. 
Yeah. <laughs> candy. Yeah, candy. All, all candy? That's like all a candy? whole genre. Yeah. Most candy, I just, it's just sweet and nothing. Yeah, I'd say candy. <laughs> yeah. Who's someone that you would want to have a chat with on a podcast? So there's this woman who I am obsessed with and, and starting to write about and writing a screenplay about. Her name is Marie Joseph Angelique. And she was this woman in the early 1700s who was truly a warrior. She was a enslaved woman and asserted her independence and because she refused to be owned by anyone. She refused to be in bondage. And, and her story has all of these layers of complexity. But she led what is believed to be the first documented rebellion in the so-called New World. And her resistance is documented. And I would love to talk to Marie-Joseph Angelique to find out what we don't know. Like we know what's in these papers and the history of her resistance as it's seen through uh, the eyes of the French attorneys who were involved with her trial. But I'd like to hear her side of the story and just commend her for her fierceness and learn more. What does being a modern minority mean to you? I think being a modern minority means being true to who you are, like not to try to conform, not to try and be liked, not to try and fit in, but just be who you are and know that being true to your culture and your heritage and your identity, whatever you want it to be and whoever you are is good enough. And like as a black woman, I can tell you honestly, there are many ways to be black and there are many ways to be a woman and I personally am being true to myself there's nothing nothing better than being true to yourself well Jardine I'm just so delighted that we had the chance to go deeper on all the work that you've done and more more importantly understand how and why you do what you do because everything I've seen of you over the years has just been so impressive and inspiring and I just want to thank you for doing that work and I hope you'll keep doing it for the rest of us. Wow, thank you. That's such a compliment coming from you and and both of you. Thank you for this opportunity. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. Mixed race identity differs significantly from monoracial identities. If you are the white son of a white Scottish, you are a white Scot in Scotland, Brazil, in Nigeria, Kenya, and America. But if you are the son of a white Scottish and a black Jamaican, then in Scotland, you are something else. In Jamaica, you are something else. And in America, you are something else. And this presents opportunities and challenges. It's not feeling a sense of control over how you are perceived. So if I walk into a Nigerian village, I will be perceived as whitish, even though I grew up in Nigeria. And when I got to Poland, they'd call me all those nasty names, despite the fact my mom was Polish. Identity is something kids pick up quite quickly, which identities to emphasize. There's challenges involved, you know, but there's some bad, but there's also some good. So I have to take both. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.